You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. My sermon tonight, the Son of God, part one. The Son of God. If there was ever a dividing line between the Christian faith and all other religions of the world, it is this single truth that Jesus is the Son of God. This truth is what separates us from all other monotheistic uh, faiths out there like Islam or Judaism and is in fact a stumbling block that many unbelievers fall on. I enjoy watching uh, apologetics videos, people going out and preaching the gospel to the lost, especially those involving other faiths. And it's particularly interesting, the arguments that you hear from Muslims regarding the deity of Christ. Oftentimes you'll hear this uh, from, from that side. Uh, Jesus himself has never said that he was God. Or they'll say, uh, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus said that he was God. I mean, what? Like, I've, like we just read it, right? If you've ever seen that meme on TikTok or social media of that guy who points out the obvious, it's like, right? Like, we just read it. It's right here in our passage. Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. In verse 18 it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It is not just in our passage, of course. In John chapter 10, verse 30, it says, Jesus himself says, I and the Father am one, or I and the Father are one. In case there's any misunderstanding about that statement, the Jews, it says right after this, that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In verse 33, the Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Or how about in John chapter 8, when Jesus intentionally takes onto himself the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush, the tetragrammaton, the most sacred, the most holy name in all the Jewish faith, so holy that they used a proxy in place of it in the Old Testament so that mere men could not utter it. Yet Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. By the way, why did the Jews crucify Jesus? What reason did they have? Well, in John chapter 19, the Jews answered, Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So yes, Jesus did claim to be God all throughout his ministry. And the Bible tells us this, affirms this. They crucified Jesus because he claimed to be the son of God. This is why Christ's identity as the Son of God is the greatest stumbling block to anyone who, 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 who would believe because it's easy enough to believe that Jesus is some great moral teacher or some great prophet that, that performed miracles in the past or some iconic figure who changed or revolutionized the history of man. But to believe that he was and is God, that takes something more. That takes, requires faith. Now, not only is this truth a stumbling, stumbling block for unbelievers, but it's also at the core of our Christian faith. 
Christ's identity as the Son of God. This truth is what the entire Christian faith hinges on. Because if Christ is not the Son of God, then there is no resurrection. There is no living hope. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no redemption. There is no example of God's love. There is no promise of eternal life. No access to the Father. Not even grounds by which we can say that we have a valid ground or valid source of morality. Because if Jesus was not actually the Son of God, that would make him a liar, a charlatan, a deceiver. And that's not someone you want to use as an example on how to live a good and honest life. But if Christ was and is the Son of God, the implications of this truth has cosmic consequences. It means that we should be afraid and terrified when he says, you are either for me or against me. Or when he says, anyone who doesn't believe in me is condemned already. This idea of Jesus being the Son of God is the whole point of John's Gospel. The Apostle is writing to convince his readers that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. John chapter 20, verse 31. You should already have this memorized. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. The only way that we get life, the life that God promises us, is by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Not that He's a good moral teacher or or some great miracle worker or simply one of many messengers from God. Our validity as Christians hinges on whether or not we believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, God Himself. Because if this is skewed, if this is doubted, then we're no better than the Jews that wanted Him dead for His claims. Or the Jews that believed in the miracles that He performed, but not in who He was as the Son of God. So tonight what I want to do for us, church, is unpack through our passage what this identity of Christ entails. Because... It's more than just a title or an allegory. or It denotes the character and essence of who Jesus is. And it's important for us who claim to believe this truth to know what this truth means. Because as we'll see tonight, this truth has great implications on our relationship with God. Christ's relationship with the Father defines our relationship with the Father as believers. I've said this before. Christ did not die so that you can have a personal relationship with the Father. Christ died so that you can have His relationship with the Father. A great deal difference. So understanding Christ's relationship with the Father, what being the Son of God entails, is important for us to know so that we can know what our relationship with God entails and what it consists of. Church, my hope is that we would be secured, grounded in our understanding of who Jesus is as the Son of God. But also encouraged and emboldened by what that means for us who are now found in Him, who are now called children of God, who have been adopted into the family of God. So let's jump into this great truth in our text. Everybody say jump. This is going to be a big topic, so it's going to take us two sermons to to cover this, but we'll get through this first half of the passage tonight, and then next week we'll cover the rest. But let's begin in verse 17. Verse 17 says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, if you remember from our study last week, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda who had been laying there for 38 years. The Jews, the religious leaders, were upset about this because Jesus had performed this miracle on the Sabbath, the day of rest. So after this paralytic man turns Jesus in, it says in the previous verse that the Jews started to persecute Jesus because 
He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But now Jesus throws fuel to the fire by saying, my father is working until now and I am working. Why was this so offensive to the religious leaders? Well, verse 18, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was, the, the, was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This was the issue. Understand that this wasn't a miscommunication. Jesus wasn't just being overtly familiar with God, similar to how we call God our Father during our prayer. No. In ancient times, Jewish, in, in Jewish thinking, by declaring himself the Son of God, Jesus was explicitly telling the Jews that he was equal with God, of the same essence, of the same substance as God. You have to understand that lineage was everything in ancient Jewish society. It's why they put such an emphasis on being descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's why the, tel- the 12 tribes of Israel was so important uh, because, it denoted, uh, because it denoted status and purpose and identity, even occupation. If you were from the tribe of Levite, you'd be a priest. If you're a descendant of Judah, you could be a king. And so to the Jews, lin- uh, the idea of where you're coming from, of who your lineage is, is very important. You're, you weren't a Jew unless you were a descendant of uh, Isaac, not Ishmael. You weren't a Jew if you were, uh, unless you were descendant of Jacob, not Esau. So lineage was everything. And for Jesus to claim that his father was God himself, he's identifying himself as having his origin directly from God, having the same substance, the same nature as God. So here's the first thing that Jesus is claiming by identifying as the Son of God. Jesus is saying that he is equal to God in nature. Equal to God in nature. Of course, where where, where do you see this? In verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. Now in addition to calling God his father, understand what Jesus is saying here. It sounds pretty straightforward at first, but there's so much depth to this statement. Remember this was in regards to the Sabbath. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was healing on the Sabbath. And remember, God did say in the Ten Commandments to keep the Sabbath day holy, to observe it as a day of rest. Does that mean that Jesus broke the law? Certainly not. Remember, Jesus was perfect. He upheld the law. He, 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 he didn't break any single commandment from God in the Old Testament. Remember, he, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to be the perfect sacrifice. So how is it that Jesus can perform these miracles on the Sabbath without breaking the Sabbath law? Well, the only way for Jesus to bypass the Sabbath law was to equate himself and his work to that of God's. See, the Jews, the Jews knew that God didn't actually rest on the Sabbath. He didn't need to rest. This is God. The Old Testament says that God doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow faint. So God doesn't get tired. In addition to this, they knew that God was still at work during the Sabbath, that he never took a break. Uh, during the Sabbath. And they saw this on a cosmic level. They saw the, the sun rise on the Sabbath. They saw the, the wind blow. They saw the grass grow. They saw crops bloom on the Sabbath. God in His sovereignty over all creation could be seen working, sustaining, maintaining, restoring, even on the Sabbath day. So in order to argue around this notion of God working on the Sabbath, the Jews made provisions for God uh, for God's kind of work in their extra-biblical laws concerning the, Tal- the, the, the Sabbath in the, in the Talmud. 
For example, they said this, just to, again, give God sort of a loophole. They said, you can bring a plate of food from one room of the house to another room of the house, and that wouldn't be considered work. And then they argued, now because the entire earth is God's house, it's okay for him to give and provide food for people in the earth. That was the thinking. They gave God a loophole. Now how about this? They gave this other loophole. This other loophole. They said, uh, you can carry something on the Sabbath as long as it's not above your shoulders. Because if it's above your shoulders, that means it's heavy, that means it's work, that means you, you're, you're putting effort into it. But if it's below your shoulders, it's not considered work because it's something light, you can do it on your own. Therefore, God isn't actually working when He does things on the Sabbath because nothing is too heavy for God. Right? Because it's, nothing's a burden to God. It's, it's not considered work to God when He does something on the Sabbath. Loophole. So when Jesus says, my Father is working until now, in response to the accusations about breaking the Sabbath laws, he's pointing, to the, he's pointing to the reality that God in His nature never rests, that He never grows weary, that God con- doesn't consume energy when He works, that God doesn't draw His energy from an outside source, that He is, that God is constant, that He's undiminished, that He's eternal, He is infinite in power, infinite in strength, infinite in energy, and therefore nothing is actually a burden to God. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, me too. My Father has been working since the dawn of creation. He's been keeping the orbits constant of the planets. He's been sustaining the seasons, causing the sun to rise and the rain to fall, making crops grow and bring forth fruit, giving breath to our lungs, providing sustenance to both the good and the bad, blessing the wretch and the righteous, healing for the sick and protection for the healthy. In His divine nature, my Father has never stopped His work, and neither have I. That's what Jesus is saying in this statement. Jesus was claiming claiming the same loophole that the Jews created to accommodate God uh, for Himself. And His reasoning is because He shares the same divine nature as God. And rightly so. John even has said in the beginning of his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We even read this in the beginning passage from tonight, Hebrews chapter 1. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. The Sabbath doesn't apply to the Father, nor does it apply to the Son, who is of the same divine nature. In another passage, Jesus says the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath. And because Jesus was not merely a man, he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was saying to the Jews, it wasn't a burden for me to heal that paralytic man. It was light work. No heavy lifting required. Christ was declaring that he was equal to God in nature. And the Jews hated this. But then Jesus pushes the thought even further. He says in verse 19, Truly, truly, meaning amen and amen, this is a verified truth to believe. Jesus usually says this when he's about to throw down some hard truths to correct the mentality of who he's talking to. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What's Jesus talking about here? It means that Jesus does not act independent of the Father's will. 
It means that Jesus can't do something that he doesn't see the Father doing. It means that whatever the Father does, he does also. This is touching on what theologians call the impeccability of Christ. The impeccability of Christ, meaning the quality of being without error or fault. Answer this question. Could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? For a show of hands. For those who think that Jesus could have sinned, put your hand up. Yes. Oh, look at all these theologians. And then for those who think that Jesus couldn't have sinned and said no, and then saying, interesting, not everybody put their hand up on the fence. You're either for me or you know, against me. What is this? Like your yes be yes and your no be no. Everything else is, you know. Uh, well, the answer is no. We see the answer to this question elsewhere, but our passage even says so. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. That's all Jesus can do, only what He sees the Father doing. God cannot sin, therefore Jesus cannot sin. God cannot be evil, therefore Jesus cannot be evil. God cannot tell a lie, therefore Jesus cannot tell a lie. God cannot be unfaithful, therefore Jesus can never be unfaithful. That is the point. Jesus does exactly what the Father does. He doesn't act independently, nor can he do something outside of the Father's will. He cannot and will not because it would be against his nature. Jesus forever does what the Father does in the same way the, that the Father does it. Therefore, the one who does exactly what God does in the same way that he does it, does it is equal with God. What Jesus is claiming here is that he is equal to God in work. Equal to God in work. Jesus later says in John 8, 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is telling the religious leaders to their face, Hey, listen, I'm not acting independently. Everything I do, everything I say, every thought, every intention I have is exactly identical to God. And is in fact God's. Uh, will, God's plan, God's purpose, God's work. So to accuse him, to accuse Jesus of sin is accusing God of sin. To accuse him of violate, violating the Sabbath is accusing God of violating the Sabbath. To accuse him of blasphemy is accusing the holy, holy, holy God of blasphemy. Jesus even says later in verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. Checkmate, right? Like, you got him. Like, how do, what do you say to that? Right? Jesus literally is saying, I cannot sin. I can do no wrong. You have no grounds to accuse me. This would have infuriated the religious leaders, no doubt. Not only was Jesus claiming the omnipotent nature of God, he was also claiming God's impeccable work, his faultless work. By the way, Jesus is the only one who can claim this, Right? Jesus is the only one that can claim to be perfect in everything that he does because everything that he does is everything that the Father, the holy, perfect God does. Jesus is equal to God in work. And what's the work that God does? Well, Jesus lists it out. In verse 21, he says, Whereas the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. This is the perfect work of God to save humanity, raising the dead to life and bringing judgment on, on the dead. Jesus is saying also that his judgment is impeccable without error. His judgments are true. 
since the fall of man, God has been working to restore creation, to save humanity. And the Son of God has been part of that same work. Revelation 13.8 even says that the Lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth. Meaning, God the Father and God the Son had already planned before creation what the Son's role would be in the work of salvation. That He would die for our sins. Jesus has been doing the same work, is doing the same work, is committed to that same work as the Father. And because He's doing that work exactly the way that the Father does it, it is perfect without error. He is equal to God in work. Now a good question to ask at this point is, wait, why? Why does God the Father share his work with the Son? And why does Jesus only do what the Father does? Why is God the Father and God the Son so in sync with what they do? Why is God the Son so willing to obey the Father's will and his work, even to the point of death? Well, verse 20, it says... For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The great motivation behind why the Father shows the Son what to do, his will, his work, and why the Son does everything that the Father does is because of love. The Father loves the Son and, and, and the Son loves the Father. You know, my, my son Judah is at the age where he's starting to copy everything that he hears and sees. And when something happens to that, that shocks him, he says, Oh gosh! Because somebody in the house likes to say, Oh gosh. When he sees a bug or a spider, he cries out and he cries and, and tries to swat it away because he saw someone in the house doing the same thing. It wasn't me. Now, as a loving father, I don't want him to be afraid of bugs. I don't want him to grow up with that fear. So I try to show him that he can pick up bugs and that he can play with them and that he doesn't need to be afraid with the, with the bugs because he's much bigger than them. And I've even showed him that if you hit a bug hard enough, they go splat. And so now he goes around pointing to dead bugs going, da-da, dead, dead. And that was me. My point is, I, I show, I'm showing him these things out of love. And in a very, very imperfect way, I think it's the same way with God the Father and God the Son. God the Father shares his work with God the Son out of love. God the Son does the work and God, obey, uh, God, uh, obeys, God the Son obeys the Father out of love. And so having understood that Christ is equal to God in nature and in work, we can then conclude that Christ is also equal to God in love. Jesus is equal to God in love. He has to be. Because he's composed of the same essence of God, the same nature, with the same capabilities as God, with the same intentions, with the same will, with the same impeccable work as God. Christ loves like the Father. But understand that the truth doesn't just stop there. Because understand that the Father's love for the Son is what drives everything in this universe. Everything. Look what Paul says back in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Father delighted, was pleased to have his very nature reflected in the Son in order that, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is the love of the Father for the Son that the 
plan of redemption is carried out in. So you understand that the whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of this world, this universe, human history, is so that God the Father can demonstrate His perfect love to His Son. And the way that the Father expresses His love for the Son is by preparing, by redeeming for His Son a perfect bride, the church. This is the sweeping truth of redemption. The infinite, transcendent, perfect love of the Father for the Son demonstrated in the redemption of the bride of Christ, the church. That's every single believer in Christ. We don't see this a lot in our Western culture, but in ancient times, it was the Father's job to find a suitable wife for His Son. Look at, look at Genesis 24, the story of Abraham sending a servant out to find a suitable wife for his son Isaac. We even read how the finding of this wife was a sign of God's steadfast love for Abraham. And it's the same for God. That's why in John chapter 6 and John 17, Jesus refers to believers as those who the Father is giving to Him or has given to Him or will be given to Him Listen, if you are a believer in Christ, understand that you are a love gift from the Father to the Son. You are a sign of God's perfect love to the Son. See, you can, love, you can give without loving, right? You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And God, wanting to demonstrate His perfect love to the Son, gives to Him his, a perfect gift, a perfect bride that has been made pure and clean and worthy of His Son's love. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at this with me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the purpose for your sanctification, church, that the Father's gift to the Son might be perfect and complete. See, church, we are caught up in this divine love relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is willing to send the Son so that He can give the Son the gift of His love, the bride, the church. The Son is willing to go to the cross out of loving obedience to the Father. All of it is done out of this perfect, this infinite, this eternal love between Father and Son. And listen, lest you think that you're merely a byproduct or a side effect of this divine love. Here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Why, why this divine love between the Father and the Son is so important for our, understand, for our understanding, for our faith, and even for our salvation. Listen to this. Jesus says in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That same infinite, transcendent, perfect, unconditional, irrevocable, all-encompassing love that the Father has for the Son, the Son has loved you the same. Anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that's the depth, the breadth, the length of the love that Christ has for you. And because the Son can only do what He sees the Father doing, it means that Jesus' love for you is simply a reflection of the Father's love for you. Understand the security that this entails. Listen, 
This is why it is so crucial to our faith that Jesus is the Son of God because the Father never ceases to love the Son. It means that the Father never ceases to love us. In fact, the same way that the Father has eternally loved the Son before the foundations of the world, without beginning or ending, in the same way, brothers and sisters, the Father has loved you. His identity is our security. People talk about losing their salvation so loosely that they don't comprehend what that would entail. Because it would mean that the Father ceases to love us. But the reality is the Father can't cease to love us because there was never a beginning to the Father's love for us. He has always loved us from eternity past to eternity tomorrow. The same way that the Father has loved the Son completely, irrevocably, unconditionally, He has loved us. He has loved us even knowing how wretched we are, how prone our hearts are to wander, all the sins that we would ever commit. In Christ, He has always loved us from forever. Let me show you this in the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 10. Look at this. I love this passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The reason we cannot lose our salvation if we are in Christ, because in Christ the Father has chosen us, he has predestined us, he has adopted us, he has forgiven us, he has lavished us with all wisdom and insight, he has united us, he has blessed us, he has made us holy and blameless, and in Christ the Father eternally loves us. This is why Jesus needs to be the Son of God. Because all of that would be would not be there if he was not the Son of God. Remember what we said in the beginning. Jesus didn't die so that you could have a personal relationship with the Father. Jesus died so that you can have his relationship with the Father. Church, this is why our faith hinges on the fact that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Because if he wasn't, then we would have nothing. No assurance of forgiveness, no redemption, no cleansing of sin, no hope for eternal life, no adoption into God's family. We cannot even say with confidence that God loves us. Because Jesus is the Son of God, we can say with confidence and believe with assurance as Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, 
nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, as we close tonight, I want you to remember this. You know, we hear it all the time. Right? We see it as every week. Remember this, church. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved eternally, unconditionally, irrevocably, regardless of what you have done, regardless of what you are going to do, regardless of what you are going through, regardless of what doubts or fears you might have in your heart. If you are in Christ tonight, you are loved eternally by the Father. Remember, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And his love is just a reflection of God's love. He also says in that verse, abide in my love. That means rest in his love. Be still in his love. Linger in his love. Situate yourself in the perfect love of Christ. Whatever you're going through, however difficult, know that you are loved, you are accepted in Christ. Rest in his love, in his acceptance. Christians always get this mentality of having, after coming to faith and after coming to to faith in Christ, that they have to continue working for God's love, that if they mess up, that if they stumble, if they do something wrong, then, then somehow God stops, stops loving them. Listen, you don't have to work for the love of God. God's love is unconditional. It's unmerited. The Father has loved you with the perfect and eternal love that he has loved the Son with. And, of course, Christ is the evidence of that. Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. His death, his death on the cross, Christ's sacrifice is what we come to remember at the Lord's table. At this time, I'm going to ask the volunteers to prepare themselves. Whenever we come to communion, to partake of the Lord's table, it's always to remember of this great love that God has demonstrated to us the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's only those who are truly in Christ, who have really put their faith in Christ, who can understand and really have a sense of meaning in this, in this practice, in this communion. So, as we go about this, this table, I ask you to search your heart to really reconcile with yourself and God if you have really been found in Him. Because this table is for those who are in Christ. For those who have truly identified in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if that's not you, as, as the elements are distributed and passed around, go ahead and just kindly pass up the elements. 
Paul also says in 1 Corinthians, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. If you are harboring a sin in your heart, something unconfessed, something that you have been disobedient about with God. That's something to reconcile first before you partake of this table. So even in that instance, if, if, if that's your situation, I ask you to pass up this communion this evening. Take this time to examine yourself, your heart. Recall, remind yourself, remember the love of God has saved you. Please stand with me. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are reminded of your beautiful love that which you lavished on us. And the love that the Son had for you, that he was so obedient to your will and to work, and to your work even to the point of death on the cross. And as we've said tonight, Lord God, we understand that the only reason that we can stand here tonight before a holy God, cleansed and forgiven of our sins, is because of that great love the love that, that you love the Son with and the love that the Son has loved us with. Lord, we praise you. We pray, oh God, that you bring the conviction of our sins to our hearts. That you remind us of the joy of our salvation. That you remind us, oh Lord, of the sweet love of Christ. And can display it on the cross of Christ. God be honored and be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Let's partake of the bread together.
Lord Jesus, we remember that was the body that was broken and bruised that we might have healing, that we might have liberty. We remember the body that was broken for us, a great sign of your eternal love for your bride. Remember, oh God, that though we did not deserve it, did nothing to merit it, that you laid down your body for us. Lord, be glorified. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink from the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the Lamb of God, who washes the sins of the world. We thank you for allowing your Son to die on the cross, that his blood might cleanse us white as snow, that in his blood we might have the forgiveness of sins, redemption, freedom, O oh Lord. We thank you, O oh Lord, by that by the death of your son, you have adopted us into your family, into your household. Oh God, we praise you. We glorify you. We consider ourselves blessed and humbled by your great love. I pray that you would be honored by the praises of your sins. We thank you, God, for this time. In Jesus, your mighty name.
listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. 
Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.